Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Uh, we do have a lot of alum, parents, visitors. Uh, so I want to say quickly um, this semester on Sunday mornings, we've mostly uh, been hearing testimonies from um, students, uh, maybe some staff. Um, we, uh, we come here uh, together on Sundays, on Wednesdays. We um, are CCF together uh, just to try to be um, disciples of Jesus, to be living sacrifices in the world, um, not just in this room, but in our lives everywhere on campus and our families and beyond. Uh, but when we come together in here, we have um, the this, this special opportunity um, to, to come um, into this space um, quietly and uh, with, with love and hunger, um, pay attention to each other uh, as we together try to pay attention to God. And so from these testimonies, we've asked people um, to reflect on their life, uh, to, to ask the question, um, where have I seen God? How have I seen God? What, what has happened in my life for God to draw me more fully into um, relationship with God that I can be fully myself in the world? And um, so we've had awesome stories of people taking different angles on uh, what episodes they want to talk about, what particular strongholds, joys they've seen um, God do that in. Uh, this morning we have uh, a brand new opportunity to hear for the very first time from a very old man. I remember five and a half years ago uh, meeting this tiny little boy on the CCF lawn during a Yaw Week thing, and uh, he told me his name. His name became a source. It was like a, what's that little guy's name? Rumpelstiltskin. It was like one of these things, because Megan, this other staff person, also met him, and she was like, that boy had the longest name in the world. And I was like, Conrad? <laughs> no, it was like really, it was like really long, and that has since turned into... Cornbread, Sizzleberry, Conbro, Strongsburg, what, whatever it is. Um, uh, you may know him as professor. He's a um, six-year grad student, teacher, Conrad. He is a um, longtime faithful um, CCFer, just walking around like an ox carrying refrigerators and reading Paradise Lost. Please give it up for Cornbro Strongsburner. See if that works. Um, hello, is this on? Is this? It's on. Okay. Uh, here we are. Um, <coughs> yes, I'm old. My name is Derek. Introduced me to a new one, Cornface. That was a new one. Um, I kind of like it. Um, yeah, uh, I'm a very old man here, and this is my first and potentially last time speaking. I don't know. Um, I have family. Let us do it. There we are. Uh, the center one I put in the middle because that is Riley when he found a cat and he had a cat cat carrier. Um, yeah, there's uh, there's us as babies. There's my dad when I asked him to put a plunger on his head because he's an amazing man and he just did it. Um, and uh, yeah, there's the rest of us. Um, and then here's also. My, my other family. Okay, yeah, so. <laughs> I, was, I was going through my phone and I found I had like, I found like, like 25 pictures of Seth Smith. I, I, set, I was sitting right where Josh is sitting. I would just take pictures of, of Seth like every week. And then obviously you know Reed, 
Um, <laughs> Derek, that is my boy Avery, and Noah. <laughs> yes, I know. They'll, uh, ma they'll make an appearance again, don't worry. Okay. Um, <clears throat> um, yes, I've probably had some of you in class. Uh, who, who are my Spencers here? Yeah. He was my first student, and we were small group leaders together, so that's weird. Um, Lawson, your grade is dependent upon how good of an audience member you are today. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's get... <laughs> Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Uh, this, this testimony is called Conrad equals God, or my brother speaking to Adam, or Conrad lied about the first title, or Conrad didn't know he was lying about the first title until the last one, or breaking idols with letters. Okay. As I felt my way around a subject for this talk, I went through various anecdotes worth sharing. However, each one never really encapsulated the full degree of what I wished to convey. And even today, as I speak to you of my life and what God has been doing in it, I do feel hesitant. Large pieces of the puzzle that is me will be omitted. This hesitancy comes from a long-standing tradition of covering all the bases before anyone else speaks. In doing so, I try to win arguments before they're had, provide an analysis of all the variables before anyone else, and leave whoever I am talking to incapable of rebuking me. Because if you rebuke me, that means I was insufficient in some way. And at one point, I was, it was pretty regular for me to look miles down the road at all the potential criticism toward me, trying to account for each one, and in doing so, I failed to look at what was in front of me. And maybe most truly, I failed to look at myself. I tended to treat the future with all my perceived assumptions as more real than the present, at least in its effect on how I treated others. Everything revolved around those constructed perceptions, around how I would be perceived by others. And so today, as I stand before you, I will attempt to relate a few stories from my life that give insight into what I feel God has been teaching me in relation to them. My insights will not be exhaustive, nor will each variable be accounted for. There will be gaps of ambiguity and incompletion, but I, but I have also learned, such as the magic of stories to speak them and allow them to visit each listener uniquely. What remains here at the beginning is the hope that what I speak of my, as I speak of myself, I also speak of you. Perfect, okay. <laughs> In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but with Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Brother versus brother is the first story of strife and murder in the Bible. Here's another story. Several years ago, my family and I were on vacation down at Gulf Shores, Alabama. I was ashamedly only on my 10th read-through of Paradise Lost, <laughs> consuming it without restraint. I was a novice, forgive me. <laughs> it was somewhat ironic in the paradisal atmosphere of the beautiful sands, shores, and beachside waves, I was intently focused on the loss of paradise rather than its enjoyment. In my reading, I would come across a line from the poem that I later learned was speaking to me. The affable angel, Raphael, eventually contracting his brow, says to Adam, be lowly wise, know to know no more. Raphael would make another appearance that day. We were in the car on the way to dinner when I asked a question regarding solipsism, <laughs> which I basically boiled down to, how do you know anything truly exists outside your mind? Amazing, right? I asked it with a smirk and a hue of intellectual condescension as my academic and philosophical prowess would demonstrate I was indeed a gifted mind. But as I began to savor the resulting awe from my family upon being asked such a magnificent question, the disappointed brother, Connor, contracting his brow, says to Conrad, what in the heck are you talking about? Why would you ask that? <laughs> here, touch me. I'm here. We're all here. <laughs> As it turns out, Connor was my Raphael. In his own way, he was saying the same thing I had already read. No to no, no more. Well, a part of me wishes to cover my amazing parents or my older brother, all of whom I love so dearly. I instead will talk about a part of me that few people can fully relate to. For those of you who do, not, who do not know, or have maybe recently seen with some of the images, I am a triplet. I know, right? <laughs> uh, believe me, I, I worked really hard to earn it. Uh, <laughs> it may seem odd to some. After all, most of my desire in college was to be seen as an individual, more than just a third of something. This desire is shared by the other two of the Trinity, Connor and Shelby. We craved validation individually. We desperately wanted to stand out, and a deep competitiveness came out of this need to distinguish ourselves from one another. This deep competition became the core of how I related not just to my brother and sister, but to everybody. While growing up as a triplet in a small town, people knew us before we knew them. In our early years, we were quite amazed by this. There was something cool about it, a sort of stardom. We even have our own holiday in our hometown. But this wouldn't last, and eventually the cons seemed to outweigh the pros, and internal angst and strife began to add up by the time we were getting into high school. No actions, thoughts, or behaviors were ever just our own. If I do this, it affects the siblings. If they do that thing, it affects me. There was an injustice felt between us, that we could be subjected to punishment or prejudice because of the actions or behavior of the others. It was easy to assume we were each completely to blame and completely innocent of people's perceptions of us. 
By the time we wanted individuality, we felt shackled to each other and resentment emerged. What we all wanted in the end was distinguishment, or maybe most truthfully, we wanted to be perceived as such. Ah, <laughs> oh, I love these pictures. There's Connor in a Teletubby outfit. He's a cute baby. Um, and then he just found a baby there. Um, just picked up a baby. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, our music teacher brought her baby to class, and Connor just held the baby. Um, and there's us as kids. There's Connor stacking water glasses on each other. And then there's us back in high school. Riley's behind us there. He snuck his way into the picture. This competitiveness, this wanting to be distinguished, I felt this mo most palpably towards Connor. Shelby had an easier time distinguishing herself from us, given that she was blonde and we were brunette. <laughs> I think that's what did it. <laughs> Connor and I, <laughs> Connor and I grew up almost inseparably. We were on the same teams, liked the same things, played together, wrestled together, and fought together. But at the same time, Connor and I were inverses of each other behaviorally. Connor was rash, temperamental, and passionate, and always wanted to be first. On the other hand, I was reserved, observant, apathetic, and could tolerate being second, third, or even fourth if it meant I was seen as good by my parents. I was the golden boy, an obedient and upstanding child that would make any parent gush. I was well-behaved, tolerant, kind, and nice. I don't think you get it. <laughs> I was defiantly content, fearfully loyal, and insufferably devout to authority figures. As the desire for individuality emerged within us, the once relatively peaceful brothers became each other's enemy. This manifested in episodes of anger, followed by a return to our natural harmonious states. I viewed this as Connor's resentment towards me for always being so amazingly nice. He never got to want something without seeming like a villainous crook next to me. And despite whatever genuine goodness rested within me, in many ways, what I wish to talk about today is the destructive and corruptive a corrupt aspects that brooded within me Things that were genuinely maybe good through idolatry became, began to eventually turn hateful and harmful. Connor had always wanted to be, quote, the winner. But, but I learned early on that I could win in the long run by losing in the short run. Over and over I thought, okay, Connor, I lose. And still fear me with punches. Wrestle me into submission, win an argument about how you're bigger, stronger, or braver, beat me at basketball, baseball, hell, football too, and show everyone how amazing you are. But at least everyone will see how petty you are, how unfocused you are on the fact that needing to be better than me made you seem shallow. And so Connor got the momentary reward, but I built up a credibility whereby I was praised for being the bigger person. I would win the war by losing battles at the right time and place. People would see me as better than him. Because of this routine, I developed a superiority complex, whereby genuine character virtues within turned into obsessive vices. 
I felt justified. After all, Connor was the temperamental one. I was just his victim. Now humility, once genuine, turned into a way to manipulate others' perceptions. Knowledge turned into a tool to silence any would-be doubters of my excellence. Compassion would be my camouflage. Behind it was a profound desire. I needed to be seen as somehow superior to him, and eventually superior to others. This was my righteousness. But at the same time, I knew that whatever victories I won in the eyes of others were just products of me swindling and deceiving them, leaving me unable to find any, find any confidence or satisfaction in any of it. It made each person's view of me correct or incorrect, nothing more than a product of my insecurity, currency reduced to nothing by the way it was earned. No, no matter how much you rig it, it is a game you cannot win. I also would come to realize that at the same time I was gaining a perceptual advantage over Connor, I was also resentful and jealous of him. I thought of myself of Abel, as Abel, the character, not the verb. Um, <coughs> but I was seeing the world as Cain. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Because here's the truth. Maybe I did want that thing I let him have or win that game I lost to him in. And just like my superiority complex, my practice of judgment would extend from Connor to everyone around me. My behavior produced a person who never really developed how to properly fight for something he really wanted, and instead just learned to live with losing things, so long as I am perceived as superior to others, to others because of it, to be the most respected, somber person in town. I entered college as all of you have. And in doing so, I fully believed that the insecurity I'd come to feel would disappear as time and space would snuff it out. But this was not the case. In fact, it worsened. <laughs> My need to be perceived as superior, starting, starting with Connor, had metastasized into something worse. I started going to CCF and decided early on that whatever it meant to know God, I would be the one who could teach you. God was the subject I could use to demonstrate the depth of my knowledge and intelligence. I had to know whatever theological message was being had, whatever deep, deeper meaning existed, I had to find out. I longed to be perceived as one who possessed God within him. But in my private life, I put him on the bookshelf with the rest of my books. And what of people? Either thieves of the praise that was rightfully mine or mere mediums of praise I was rightfully due. People became crops to harvest praise and perceptions. I had constructed an image of myself as so complete, so virtuous, and so knowledgeable that the daily reminder of my failing to attain that constructed image of myself resulted in paralyzing anxiety and fear. And flail though I tried, that image was never something I could attain. I spent nights reading to the point of temporary blindness, studying to the point of nihilism. I couldn't eat, and when I did, I would puke to the point of vomiting blood. Such is the sacrificial cost of making your own image the god you worship. 
It demands more than you are, by definition. Everyone had become the part of Connor I needed to beat, the part I could only aim to defeat. All I saw were competitors. For two years, this would be my life. I would come to realize I had been looking at the world through Cain's eyes. Sin is crouching at your door. Jealousy was a close companion, the glasses I wore upon waking up in the morning, the ones I could see life through. W.H. Auden once said, all we are not stares back at all that we are. And for this time, it felt like everything was staring back at nothing. And it's funny. <laughs> now I can sit here and reflect with, uh, with criticism and contempt and regret. But believe me, at the time, I, I thought this level of self-willed misery was uh, just the stresses of college, <laughs> completely natural. But this state of obsessive self-perception and jealousy would come undone from the quietest of destructions. I was in my sophomore year at Truman and was taking Bible as literature with Dr. Jennifer Jesse. <laughs> She's here, I'm just so, I'm kind of nervous now. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, now to introduce her, I'll merely ask you to imagine God's love, but a bit, a bit better. <laughs> joking aside. Um, <laughs> sorry. I took this class because, as I stated previously, God was a great subject to display my knowledge. He was an infinite topic, and I'm a bold guy. With a history of using God as a projection of my gifts, so, any, so if anyone could learn and display some sort of deep understanding of the divine, it was me. We had a fantastic class with Kelsey Mitchell, Josh Taylor, oh, Josh Taylor, <laughs> And even the village idiot, Jacob Nicholson. <laughs> I wrote joke in here, but it's not a joke. <laughs> He's just the worst. Okay. I was a distinguished student, as I aimed to be. And this was further evidenced by Dr. Jesse's invitation to me, to her home, for dinner. And you thought you had reason to boast. The professor singled me out, who are you, to me. With the same arrogance exuding from those previous questions I just asked, I wrote a paper we were asked to write for, write in her class. It was on an Old Testament pericope, an, ep an episode. I turned it in with the deepest assurances that I was finally achieving the image I had so longed for others to see a perfect sacrifice from the field of my knowledge. A few weeks later, our papers were returned. I was a bit surprised at first, given that the front page didn't say should be published. <laughs> but skipping over that slight error on her part, <laughs> I went ahead and looked at it. And since I knew there were no errors on my part for her to mark, I flipped immediately to the back page to see where she put the A. Located modestly beneath a paragraph of commentary was a capitalized D. A sort of paralysis overtook me as I had just been exposed. But at the same time, I felt rage. My offering was not favored. I felt shame, anger, fear, and sadness. It sounds trivial, it's a paper, and rightfully so. It's just so silly in retrospect. 
But remember, my entire image was based around, oh, sorry, I flipped the paper. <laughs> around a constructed idol of myself, an idol others could see and accept. And the thing about constructed idols is that breaking them takes so little strength. And mine was broken by a single letter. I went to visit Dr. Jesse in her office later that week. I went there for her to rebuild what she had destroyed and fix her mistake. As we began talking about the paper, she saw that I was lifeless and frozen. After talking through what I, I was afraid of, I began to cry. I realized that I had no condition to point to that justified my deficient paper except my own flaws and faults, my arrogance. The veil of humility I had used to hide my arrogance was dropped. All my zeal was reduced to a bowed head and watered cheeks. As she saw me crying, Dr. Jesse asked, why are you so hard on yourself? Do you think you're incapable of growth? It was later, before I realized she was asking me the same question God asked Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? I was forced to look at something I didn't want to, but with a caring presence that softened the space, which seemed made of razors by that point. It was painful for me to look at this corrupted, dependent, desperate boy I realized I was. But as Carl Jung once wrote, you find what you need where you least want to look. It's a weird image, but Dr. Jesse's grading my paper and talking to me about it tamed me. <laughs> Something about how I looked at my life, my knowledge, and my need to be perceived as a certain person was broken and bridled. What emerged was a long road of humiliation and reconciliation. As close friends like Avery Morrison, Noah Jensen, Drew Kilmer, <laughs> Logan Morris, and yes, even Reed and Derek, <laughs> knew that what I needed was accountability. But before, <laughs> but before that, I needed to learn that vulnerability is the first step on the road to wisdom and gratitude. And that takes a community, companionship, and love I cannot describe other than divine. After my idol was so easily broken, I was reminded to place my worship in something not made, but something that makes. What has resulted since Dr. Jesse's peaceful humbling of me is a slow and diligent process of reassemblage. As Dan Beachy Quick <laughs> so elegantly writes, one cannot break the idol without also breaking the self. And what the work has been for me in my life is reassembling myself in orientation towards God himself. Because as stated previously, I did possess genuine virtues, once corrupted. The moment of loving revelation in Dr. Jesse's office was a, was a, was a turning point. But it, it didn't instantly solve everything. It did give me a chance for a new beginning, which I've been steadily learning to walk in. Once an idol shatters, you are set free. Do the slow work of learning to live a life of truth.
with the real God. And so once the idol fell, so did the constraints of attaining a perfect image of myself. I was finally free to wander around, gathering up the broken pieces of God's image nestled in the rubble. We pick up the scattered image of truth limb by limb. I've since learned this through my refound love for literature, where a universal author plays in the pen strokes of a mortal one, for deep discussions with Noah, Paul, Avery, my father, and everyone else, that what we are truly, what, what we are really reassembling is the truth of a good world with the broken idols of a corrupted one. This job is not yet finished, and I live grateful to those I get to search for truth with. I'm also grateful, as we all should be, that God loves th those who seek, those who dig, and still remains with open arms for those trying to lift the weight that is his to lift, the praise of others. This community, God's hands and feet and heart in the world, will forever have my thanks. Isolation, the mark of Cain. You shall be a wanderer on the earth. While I never lured my brother into a field and rose up and murdered him, <laughs> I did make it my lifetime goal to slowly slay him and eventually others. In this we know, for what Cain murdered that day was not only his brother, but the image of God he found there, that intimate voice, the thing that looked at him and judged him. It is a temptation to murder, we all know. Individuality was all I ever sought at one point. I looked at Connor and saw nothing but that judging voice, an impediment to what I thought I had to attain to be free. But there's the rub. Once a one person becomes that, a voice or impediment, everyone does. And before long, there was nowhere I could look without finding a threat to my sacrifices. But the craziest thing was this. In the obsessive need to be perceived as superior, I really longed for something I already had, love and acceptance. It would take college and humiliation to teach me and open my eyes that focusing on the image I constructed meant ignoring the one already there the one on everyone else, God's. It is an image given to us in the womb, and should God's image not also find a frame? What remains a learned and consistent truth is that the end of complete individuality and the end of idolizing yourself is isolation. And we have so many people isolated. That ideal of myself, a superiority complex did eventually morph into genuine humility, although it's a working progress. <laughs> Not one that comes from arrogance, but from gratitude. Compassion and knowledge became ways in which to peer into each other. And now God and Christ have regained their proper place as bearers of my worship and gratitude. Where before God was a subject, a tool I used to display my own gifts, now I feel called to use my tools to display God's gifts. And this calling fulfills while the other drains. Because the thing we need when we try to become a God is that we need ever and ever more worship from others to sustain ourselves. 
an infinite need from a finite source. And as I live, I have my own angel echoing in my ear with all the expletives and profanity necessary to remind a brother daily. Now Abel said to his brother, Cain, what the heck are you talking about? Here, touch me, I'm here. We're all here. Why are you so hard on yourself? Don't you know you're capable of change? Can you not see you're in the midst of goodness? Don't let your mind leave. Stay a while. Know to know no more. Thank you. Let's pray. <laughs> I forgot we do that. <laughs> God, I'm not good at this prayer thing. I, uh, I'm too arrogant for it, and I'm, I'm trying to work on it. But I just uh, give thanks for everybody here, this community, that um, you give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. Um, and we do need community. Um, so I thank you so much for that. Um, I thank you for those in my life that um, have always been present and worked the long hours without pay. Um, I only pray that I can be that for others and that we can all be that for others. It is a privilege, Lord. It is a privilege that we have here in college to, to search through the world, to search through ideals, and still see you. May we see that in others. May we seek, and may we find, and may we share with others. Lord, if there is any idols in this room today, Lord, I pray that you break them, but break them gently. <laughs> and be there with everybody, with those who need them, as a loving hand always is. Amen.